0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station
1: 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: You know, I found a quote from American journalist Jonathan Sturgeon. He was talking about Franz Kafka, who is the author of The Metamorphosis and Other Stories. And Jonathan Sturgeon writes of Kafka... He saw a world full of invisible demons that antagonize and annihilate defenseless people. I can't think of a better description of the neighbor the 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 neighbor 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 Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts, Anne and Kevin, the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show,
2: between 5.30 and 6.30pm,
1: here Here on 3CR Community Community Radio. Radio.
2: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
1: for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone Everyone in in our our community community has values. Hi, Anne. Hello, Kevin.
2: It's Friday the 11th of December, heading towards Christmas. The year has all of a sudden vanished.
1: Mm. But
2: uh, look, I think we should explain to our dear listener.
1: Our fellow traveller in economics.
2: Whose name I keep on forgetting. (laughs) Is it Larry, (laughs) listener, or... Larissa, listener.
1: We keep forgetting the gender, let alone the name. (laughs) I I do apologise,
2: dear listener. I keep on forgetting your name. Um, But what are we talking about this week, Anne? What's what's on the agenda?
1: This week, we are going to have a good hard look at the NAIRU. The N A I R U stands for the Non Accelerating Inflation Rate. Of unemployment,
2: I've heard it described also as the natural rate of unemployment. Mm. The neoliberal economists had this uh, term for it called the natural rate of unemployment, which they then turned into the, the Nairu.
1: I think of this Nairu-Nairu thing as the evil twin brother of the job guarantee. It's like this horrible, horrible, evil idea. And every unemployed person needs to know about this thing. So one of the things about the Nairu is I think of it as like a poltergeist. I feel like it just sort of invisibly um whisks across the graphs of these economists and disturbs their numbers, but it's kind of invisible and they don't really get to see it. Uh, yeah. And all the time, you know, all the policymakers are crying poltergeist. <laughs> in fact, it's just that someone forgot to turn off the wind machine.
2: It does actually raise an, an interesting strategy that I'm reading this book at the moment called Democracy in Chains, and it's all about how the far right organized from the early 50s and the 60s. And When the far right first started organizing and putting together these think tanks, they got a fair amount of blowback. And it appears that what they've done over the years is recognize that they're fairly obnoxious and unpalatable. (laughs) So they slide things in under the radar until all these little kind of uh, concepts that they slip into the discussion seem like they've always just been there. And They're really sneaky and really clever.
1: It's no wonder that people don't know what to believe anymore. Yeah. There's a lot of mistrust out there and everyone has to sort of figure out their own way through all of this. And and when you start to hear some of this macroeconomics where they are talking about these deliberate programs of misinformation. <laughs> and everybody becomes
2: an armchair expert with their small amount of information, probably ourselves included, Anne.
1: Yes, we are no exception. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when we come back to this all the time. We are not economists, but we do speak to people who are. I guess we, we have to believe what they say with some degree of trust, but they do explain themselves rather well.
1: Yeah, it has an internal logic to what they're saying. And also, it just seems more ethical too.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So we're going to dive into the the dreadful Nehru with Dr. Victor Quirk, who- Victor was great. Is a lovely guy and also a labor market political sociologist. So he lectures in social policy, at the University of Newcastle, and he's also a long-term associate with COFFEE, the Centre of Full Employment and Equity, which is the research centre that's headed up by Professor Bill Mitchell, who, of course, is one of the founders of modern monetary theory. Victor, we have a soft spot for you because you were a guest on our very first Unemployed Workers Fight Pack. so welcome back to the show.
0: That's right. I just happened to be in town that day on your first session and uh, I didn't know it was going to be discussed.
1: (laughs) Actually, that was the reason I really wanted to talk to you again because we hadn't quite delved into your areas of interest, which I think will be very pertinent for our audience. Hmm. Victor, a wise man once said to me, if you're going to talk about the punishments and the poverty and the stigma inflicted on people who are unemployed, make sure you also talk about why we treat the unemployed that way. But before we talk about the why, I think we need to take our medicine and talk about how we manage to rationalise that it's okay to treat unemployed workers so badly. And that means that we need to talk about a concept known as the Nehru the N-A-I-R-U, not to be confused with NARU, <laughs> <laughs> which is the um, Asylum Seeker Detention Centre, although I think the two are almost as bad as each other. Mm. So the Nehru or the Nairu got me coming and going. My first shock was to find out that it actually existed, that it was a thing. <laughs> and then my second shock was to find out that it sort of doesn't exist. <laughs> The first time I heard about it, I was so horrified. I thought the person telling me about it was being a bit paranoid. So I ran home and I Googled it to find out if it existed. And lo and behold, it had its own Wikipedia entry. So I'm thinking, okay, it must be a thing if it's in Wikipedia. must be true. And we've talked with economist Dr. Stephen Hale on the program before, and he's written that Among the most persistent and dangerous of Milton Friedman's misconceptions is that of the natural rate of unemployment. And so I gather that over the years the natural rate of unemployment morphed into this non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. So I don't want people to think I'm making this stuff up. Would you mind describing the Nehru and just what it is? The
0: natural rate of unemployment was this idea that you needed to keep a pool of people unemployed and was the concept that Milton Friedman promoted during the 60s. Right. And so the Nehru, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, was asserted to be this technically uh, defined level of unemployment. If you go below that, you'll get accelerating inflation. And Milton Friedman pushed the concept that there really is a natural rate of unemployment. If you go below that rate of unemployment, an economy is going to start increasing in inflation. When you actually look at the real history of unemployment data and inflation data, there is no consistent connection between the two because there are various reasons why inflation can happen. Mm -hmm. So the only empirical basis that it ever had was a study that was done by an Australian economist actually called Phillips who plotted the ratio of wages to unemployment from I think it was something like 1865 to 1913 and found that there was this definite relationship that when unemployment was high, wages went down and when unemployment was low, wages went up. Now, that is totally intuitively sound. You could understand that because workers do have more bargaining power when there's low unemployment. Um, But then the economists later on stretched that to saying inflation and unemployment were related. Mm -hmm. So one's just talking about wage levels, the other one's talking about inflation. And that became this basis for the Nehru. But in fact, you can have all sorts of different levels of unemployment and all sorts of different levels of inflation at any time. So there's no actually sound connection. So it's just an assertion. Okay. But it actually is the basis of policy. It's what the orthodox economists, the people at the Reserve Bank, the people at the Treasury will still talk about. We, we think that the Nehru is sitting at 5% unemployment or 6% unemployment, whatever it is at any time.
1: I'm just trying to reconcile what you've just said because I've also heard economists say that, you can have two kinds of buffer stocks to fight inflation. So that one kind of a buffer stock is the Nehru, which is a pool of unemployed people, and then the other kind of buffer stock is like a job guarantee, which is a pool of employed people. So how is it that we can say that you can have a buffer stock of unemployed people but also that there's no relationship between unemployment and inflation?
0: Well, if you... Keep a pool of people impoverished and poor so that they can't spend any money. Yeah, it's going to have a a downward effect on on prices and living standards for sure. But the thing about the Nehru model of keeping a pool of people unemployed is that it's actually a very poor way to go about doing it. I mean, apart from all the social misery and social dysfunction that you're creating by maintaining this pool of unemployed people. Mm. When people are unemployed for a prolonged period of time, their productive capacity declines because their skills deteriorate, their confidence in their communication skills, their technical skills. If you're not practicing these things, if you're not exercising them, they go rusty. Now, the sort of logic behind the idea of keeping a pool of people unemployed is that when unemployment levels fall relatively low, it becomes harder for employers to find the skilled workers that they want. Uh, And so what they then do is they start poaching employed workers off each other by bidding them away from their current employers. So when unemployment levels start to get quite low, a wage inflation can often happen because of that process of poaching and the bidding up of, uh, of wages. And that can happen quite early in the recovery from a recession if you've had a pool of people unemployed for quite a while. Employers reach the point where they can't find the readily employable workers as quickly as they wanted to, even though there might be still half a million people unemployed. They're not finding the workers that they want in that pool because of the deterioration that's happened. Now, that's not necessarily... Uh, uh, an accurate perception, but it is their perception. And so they that's when they start trying to poach employed workers. There's always a preference for employing people who are already employed. Right. So, for that reason, the Nehru, uh, the use of an unemployed pool is actually a very poor model.
1: So, we're all in agreement that the Nehru does work to do its intended purpose of controlling inflation. So, the Nehru does have some validity but it's a really rotten way of going about it.
0: Yeah, and and so a, a much better way is to use something like the job guarantee model where you keep that pool of people employed.
1: So back on that point where you were saying that there's no good correlations between unemployment and inflation in the data, I walked around for a year thinking the NARU was a thing and then came my second shock when I found out that the Nehru is kind of not a thing, but that everyone's acting like it is a thing. What that means is that the Nehru is considered to be an unobserved variable or a latent variable, but it's also not falsifiable and we really don't have much empirical evidence, like you said, to say that it exists as a rate. So for anyone with a science background, that'll raise some red flags. But just to give people a flavour of that who don't have a science background, I've got a couple of quotes here. I've got a quote from Philip Lowe, who is the Governor of the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, who seemed to be in charge of managing this Nehru. And back in June 2019, he said to the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, CEDA, We don't directly observe the unemployment rate associated with full employment. We need to estimate it. And then I've also got a quote here from a senior economist at the Reserve Bank of Australia. And he wrote back in 2017 that the difference between the unemployment rate and the Nehru is the unemployment gap. In practice, the Nehru, and therefore the unemployment gap, are not observed. But we can infer the Nehru from the relationship between the unemployment rate and inflation. So if inflation is lower than expected, a possible explanation is that the unemployment gap was larger than we thought. So the way I read that is that they're predicting an invisible something, which is the Nehru, And then if their prediction is wrong, it must be because there's this other invisible something, which is the unemployment gap was either bigger or smaller than what they thought. So they're quite open about the fact that they can't actually directly measure it. So how on earth can it be that everyone is okay with this rate of unemployment that seems to be a figment of their imaginations? or I guess a nicer way of saying that is the rate of unemployment that seems to be discovered after it's happened, after the fact, or after we've measured the inflation. If that's the standard of thinking that passes for the for managing the economy, I feel like we're back in the Middle Ages. Well, it's
0: it's a political thing as much as anything. I mean, one of the conscious elements of this is the disempowerment of the labour movement. The bargaining capacity of workers is actually the thing that they're trying to manage Mm -hmm. that's why you maintain a pool of unemployment that's why there's always been fierce resistance to the establishment of full employment because of the fear that it will empower workers Mm -hmm. that is what the nature of the relationship between unemployment and workers bargaining power is Mm I'm James Juniper, I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR.
1: So the Nehru is currently used by the Australian government to target not full employment, which they could do using their ability to spend, but they're targeting a level of unemployment. And this is subscribed to by both sides of politics. Do you mind defining full employment for us?
0: The concept of full employment has been variously defined. For the post-war period, we talked about it being at 2%, that that's what it should be, Uh, 2% of the labour force. Before we go into that, we need to be clear about the usefulness of the unemployment rate as a measure of labour underutilisation. So, another problem with the Nehru to say that this level of unemployment somehow equates to this level of accelerating inflation is the way we count unemployment, we add the employed people to the unemployed people, that gives us the labour force. Mm-hmm. Those two groups are called the labour force and the unemployment rate is the number of unemployed expressed as a percentage of the labour force. Then you say, well, okay, so how do you define who's employed? Well, if you work for one hour in the survey week, you're counted as employed. Mm -hmm. So you may only have a few hours of work a week and you really want to work 35 hours a week. You're not counted as 32 hours a week unemployed you're counted as employed. So, the labour force is already being stacked.
1: So, the unemployment rate really misses the underemployment that's going on.
0: Very much so. And what's happened progressively in Australia, particularly since the recession we had to have in the early 1990s, was that there's been a a massive casualisation of the labour market. What that means is that an increasing number of people are not getting enough hours of work. And it took years and coffee was at the forefront. Bill Mitchell uh, and Martin Watts at coffee were lobbying the ABS for years to adopt an hours-based measure of labour underutilisation. Because what happens is with the household survey, it's a matter of asking them questions that define whether they fall into the employed box or the unemployed box. To be counted in the employed box, did you do one hour of work in the survey week? Yes, you're employed. To be counted as unemployed, firstly, you cannot have worked for one hour. That's the first thing. Secondly, you have to express a desire to work. You have to say, I want to work. Thirdly, you have to have applied for a job in the last four weeks, or and there's different ways in which they define what constitutes applied. And then you also have to be available to start work in a week, within a survey week. And if you don't say yes, 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 yes to all of those questions, you're not counted as unemployed.
2: If you're looking after um, children or a a sick relative and you're not ready to start work in the next week, but
0: you're looking for work, but that week doesn't particularly suit you,
2: then you're also regarded as uh, not
0: unemployed. That's right. So you're considered not to be in the labour force. Uh, You might be considered to be a person not in the labour force, but with marginal attachment to the labour force. If you meet a few of those criteria. So if you did apply for a job in the last four weeks, but you're not available to start work this week, then you get counted as having marginal attachment to the labour force. And for most of the last decade, that figure a month has been over a million people. Wow. So when the ABS adopted what they call volume measures of unemployment, where they actually took on Bill's suggestions, I don't know if it was just Bill, but Uh, The ABS started to give hours-based measures, the volume measures of unemployment. Just to give you a taste of those, 23,833,000 additional hours of work were desired by employed workers in August, 23 million. Amongst the unemployed, it was 27.2 million hours of work, which means for the labour force as a whole, there were 51 million additional hours of employment sought in the Australian labour market. What that equates to in terms of jobs equivalent, Mm -hmm. if we divide that figure by 35 hours, which is the definition of a full-time job, that means that there were 1.4 million full-time jobs missing from the Australian labour market in August of this year. Now, you think, okay, well, that's obviously a consequence of COVID, that we're in a big recession. Um, If you go back a year to August 2019, there were a million jobs missing. So it's about a 45-55% split.
1: Right. There's a very rough figure. It sounds like you could double whatever the official unemployment rate is.
0: Yes, there's a massive amount of labour underutilisation that isn't captured in the unemployment rate. That's the point. So then when you talk about the Nehru as saying that there's this unemployment rate that equates to some sort of inflation control measure, it's obviously a spurious figure because – The unemployment rate in a highly casualised economy, the unemployment rate is a very gross understatement of the actual amount of work that people are seeking but not getting.
1: And so when people who are following the Nehru as a tool for managing the economy and they're talking about being at full employment... They're even basing that calculation on a gross underestimation of what actual employment is in the economy anyway.
0: And I'm sure they understand the concept of labour underutilisation and they'd be looking at the level of labour underutilisation and making decisions as to whether that's sufficient to meet their targets for managing inflation. Right. And of course, if you're a government that's pushing for industrial relations reforms you're going to push up unemployment and labour under utilisation as high as you can get away with to soften up the labour market, to soften up the workers so that they're more fearful of losing their jobs. They're not going to be resisting a tax on their wages and conditions.
1: When you talk about they're going to push it up as high as they can get away with, that's where understanding these numbers becomes so important because if we all understood these numbers, well, we'd understand what the real situation is.
0: Well, it's very important. I mean, it's particularly important at the moment because we're now in a situation where the government is saying that it fully understands that it needs to do a massive spend into the economy to boost aggregate demand, to generate economic activity, so to rein in a recession and mass unemployment. And that could sound like they're doing everything possible that they can do. And then if there's still high levels of unemployment after that, they'll be saying, oh, well, we, you know, we threw the kitchen sink at it and it just wasn't enough, but you know we did our best. Whereas if you've got an understanding of how these numbers work, you can see that the government actually is not spending enough into the economy to avoid a recession. And this is a government and a party that have been pushing for industrial relations reforms now for the better part of a decade this is creating the environment that will enable them to do that and everyone will say well it was because of covid
1: learning a little bit of macroeconomics is is really necessary for understanding what's going on with the political decisions that are being made
0: yep in fact the government has the capacity to address the gap in aggregate demand and spend into the economy and employ more people to prevent a recession and not understanding these numbers It's very easy for a government to make it look as though they're doing everything they could.
1: I was very interested to learn that it's not just in this area of social consequences on individuals and their families and their communities of having a deliberate rate of unemployment, but the negative consequences also seem to play out in these systemic issues. And one of them that I've heard about is this idea of skills shortages would you mind unpacking the dynamic of how that works? Because I think that shows another reason why we really don't want a rate of unemployment.
0: In that post-war era, we used large-scale public sector employment. So there were heaps of jobs on the railways, in the Board of Works, in the state electricity commissions and gas and all that sort of stuff. There was massive public housing construction going on in that period. Government was a massive employer Of apprentices, a massive employer of graduates. So they were training more graduates and apprentices than they actually required. So they were acting as a net supplier of skilled workers into the economy. Mm. So people would do their uni degree, they'd get a job in the public service and be employed in their profession work there for a few years and then get a gig in the private sector that paid them more money. Right. And that was how we went for that 32-year period of full employment with very minimal skill shortages.
1: So was it understood then? Was it understood that if the government trained up an excess of apprentices and so on, that that would actually foster the health of the private sector?
0: Yes. I mean, that was a conscious policy. It was a policy in the state public services and the Commonwealth Public Service throughout that whole period, that post-war period. And the reason why that was necessary is that the private sector has never trained enough people to meet its own skilled needs.
1: Right. Okay.
0: And that is because of a problem that we have in market-based systems like ours So this is a cultural thing, so this is very common with the Anglo-type countries like the US and UK and us. Countries like Germany, for instance, they have a different sort of industrial culture over there that the industry over there have a much stronger commitment to training and development, and therefore this hasn't been such a problem there. But the problem that we have in a country like Australia is this. If you're an employer and you take on an unskilled worker with the idea of training them up, Firstly, you've got to make sure that you have a skilled worker that is supervising them closely. So you're taking a skilled worker out of production to keep an eye on this novice. Then you're running the risk that the novice is going to damage equipment or ruin materials or handle a client ineptly and therefore cheese a customer off. So there's all sorts of risks associated with so it. there
1: might be a cost, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And they would bear those risks if they knew for a fact that they would be the ones that captured this value. But the problem is that once you've trained a worker up and they've got these skills that make them productive and profitable to employ, then that person is probably also going to be profitable to employ by another employer. And so in order to retain that worker, even though you're the one that's taken these risks and made this investment, you have to pay that worker their full market price or else run the risk of them being poached. Mm -hmm. And so what employers then realise is, if I'm going to have to pay this worker the market rate to employ them anyway, why should I bear all that risk? Uh Why don't I just go into the market and buy a skilled worker at the market price anyway?
1: Someone who's already trained up.
0: And because they all are making this Conclusion, no one's doing any training.
1: That's where you need your macro, isn't it? To understand what's happening across the whole economy when everyone's making the same decision.
0: The classic thing that really appeared to me is that in the literature in Australia, there's very little discussion of skill shortages in Australia until about 1980. And since that point, there has just been this chronic repetition that there are skill shortages in Australia. And that's why we've had to have these skilled migration programs. They had all these sorts of fixes and the Hawke government brought in the training guarantee levy, if you remember that. They said to businesses, you have to pay the equivalent of 2% of your payroll and invest that in training of your staff or give that 2% to the tax department. And what happened was the business community, in their infinite wisdom, Spawned this massive industry of these junkets for senior managers,
1: right, right,
0: to go off and have you know management training programs on cruise ships, brilliant, brilliant, and, it, and on golf courses.
1: <laughs> I just think of middle managers having to do rock climbing or something.
2: <laughs> I was working for a um, an international AV company during the 1990s, and uh, we were aware of this levy that you had to pay for skills and training, and ours was sending the entire workforce from around Australia to a five-star hotel in Sydney. They fed us up. We had a wow of a time. It was all laid on and there was a 15-minute speech to do something with the development of the company and that qualified for it to be (laughs) the investment levy. It was a (laughs) (laughs) piss-up.
0: Yeah, all of this stuff was really just a junket because they resented being made to do it. But the whole issue there is that it's another reason why The Nehru approach is a very poor way to run a labour market.
1: So we have to remember this in the context of the fact that despite whatever the rhetoric is as bolstered by the Nehru, the market will never supply enough jobs for everyone. So if we look at the historic figures in Australia, the private sector has always only ever been able to employ around 77% of the labour force.
2: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience
1: of unemployment and underemployment here on
2: 3CR Community Radio.
1: So it seems that once you understand that the government is deliberately setting a rate of unemployment and that it could use its fiscal capacity to create full employment, It seems like a few contradictions show up in the rhetoric. For example, the neoliberals seem to want to have it both ways. They seem to say that unemployment is a choice by individuals because they're making the rational choice to maximise their leisure over work. And then on the other hand, they seem to be saying that unemployment is not a choice of individuals because they're maintaining a certain level of unemployment. So how do they manage to cover up that contradiction?
0: economists was this guy, Heinz Arndt, who was um, professor of economics at the ANU. And he was the first economist to go and do a stint at the OECD when Australia joined the OECD in 1971. And this was within a unit that had been set up in 1970, most probably by the Nixon administration because the US had a lot of influence over the OECD because they paid for a lot of it. And this was a unit that was set up to look at counter-inflationary strategy. And their first publication was this book called Inflation, the Present Problem, where they openly talk about the need to find ways of getting governments to push up unemployment. And they go into detail explaining that the public these days are now fully aware that the level of unemployment is totally within the control of governments. They say that back in the 30s, it might have been taken to be something like an act of God if people lost their jobs and lost their businesses. But today...
1: Today being the 1970s
0: yeah, 1970. Mm-hmm. any recession would be perceived to be a deliberate act of government. And so what it says in this publication is that the only way we could deal with the electoral backlash would be if there was an exogenous shock to the world economy that governments could point to and say, this is the reason why we're having this recession, and meanwhile cut their public expenditure that would be one way in which they could avoid the political backlash.
1: Never let a good crisis go to waste.
0: <laughs> yep. So anyway, Heinz Arndt goes over and spends six months with this unit, comes back and does a paper to the ANZAS Economics Conference in 1973. And part of his paper, he's doing it very diplomatically, he's talking around the issue. But one of the things that he quotes was Canadian research that found that the public would be more prepared to put up with higher levels of unemployment, the more they believe that the unemployment is the fault of the unemployed. Ah.
1: You know, I had thought that Job Active, with its activity tests and its mutual obligations, I had thought that its horrible dysfunction was just the case of a bad idea getting away on us, that bad idea being job readiness, making people ready to take employment. But it seems that there's a lot more to it than that. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. See, if the public's theory as to what causes unemployment is laziness or work shyness, then a government could avoid the political backlash for the unemployment that it was creating by cutting back on its public employment and expenditure. And that is why we have the big media groups, the Packer Media and the Murdoch Media launched this dole-bludger-bashing campaign that went all through 1975 in the lead-up to the election And in the years of the early Fraser government, the constant denigration of the unemployed gave the government's cover.
1: So that goes to that core question, which is where we started, which is it's one thing to create your pool of unemployed through a Nehru or whatever other ideas you've got going, but it's a whole other thing then to go ahead and blame the victim and to punish them. So now we're getting to the reasons behind that.
0: If you were to have a caring, humane, decent system of support for unemployed people, then it would undermine the real advantage of having the pool of unemployed. And that is the purpose of having a pool of unemployed is to put fear into the hearts of the workings in their jobs so that they fear the sack because they fear being unemployed. Mm-hmm. So if you made unemployment a comfortable, secure, safe and dignified experience, you would not be generating the fear of the sack in the workplace. Mm. So not only do you have to have a pretext for creating the unemployment, you also need to be able to justify treating them inhumanely. Mm. And that's why the thing that solved both problems in a way was the demonising of the unemployed and the construction of this Dole Bludger myth Mm -hmm. because you could be saying – Well, we're dealing with unemployment. We're doing everything we can to bring down unemployment because we're bullying the unemployed as hard as we can go.
1: So having a humane unemployment system would defeat the purpose of having a level of unemployment? Yeah.
0: This discussion starts off by talking about the Nehru and assuming that it was about managing inflation. Mm. It's not about managing inflation, in my opinion. It's about managing workplace discipline. The reasons why when the boss tells us to jump, we jump. If you want to have a workplace where the workers will put up with difficult conditions, poor security, casualisation, all of those sorts of things, the fear of not having a job has to be made very salient.
1: How does this logic fit in with this phrase? I've heard the reserve army of the unemployed. Is that what that phrase is referring to?
0: That's an unemployed buffer stock. Okay. It just means that when business expands, it needs workers. There's plenty of desperate workers out there. And the fact that that pool of people is sitting there undermines the capacity of workers in employment to organise and defend their rights and conditions.
1: Who coined that phrase? Marx. That was Marx, was it?
0: Yeah. And he's not the only one. You know, Milton Friedman and Marx actually have a lot in common in terms of the argument about the necessity for unemployment you'll find that uh, Marxists will say it's not possible to have full employment under a capitalist system because capitalism needs to have a pool of unemployed. So therefore, this job guarantee thing must be, you know, silly. Uh, And then you've got people from Milton Friedman's point of view saying capitalism needs to have a pool of unemployed. They both argue the same case. They've
1: come to the same analysis. Absolutely. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au.
0: You could have a non-inflationary pool of employed people who were undergoing training and skills development, so it replaces that old public sector role of being a net supplier of skilled workers to the private sector, so you're achieving that again. And the thing about the job guarantee is that it's not just a a matter of establishing full employment. It's not just a job creation system uh, because the idea of using public works and things like that to create jobs to bring back an economy that's in recession, that's a very old concept. It's been used many times all through the 19th century. Is
1: that what they call Keynesian pump priming?
0: Well, Keynesian pump priming was the idea that as long as the public sector spends money into the economy, It's going to trigger the private sector to respond to the demand, and then you'll get the reflation of the economy that way. And so that Keynesian model sort of said that it doesn't really matter what you spend the money on. As long as the government spends money, that will fuel demand. So a job guarantee is a post-Keynesian idea, so it embodies a lot of the logic of Keynes in terms of what the net effect is going to be on the macroeconomy. But the strength is the counter-inflationary aspects of it Right. because the money that you spend into the economy is firstly targeted to those points in the economy where unemployment has surfaced because it only gets triggered by giving someone a wage.
1: So it's automatically self-targeting.
0: It's targeting in that sense. So one of the classic problems with the standard pump priming approach is that labour markets are uneven. So in capital cities in Sydney or Melbourne, they could have very low levels of unemployment and be running close to full employment, whereas in country areas they might have 15% unemployment. And so if you were just showering money into the economy, before you got the unemployment in those regional areas down to any significant level, you'd be feeling inflationary spikes in those capital cities. So a job guarantee model firstly targets where the unemployment is. So the first places to get the money being spent in them would be those regional towns.
1: So achieving full employment would be a combination of two government activities. One would be a fully funded public sector and the other would be a job guarantee. So you're doing your spending without triggering inflation.
0: And that's exactly what a job guarantee system is. It's a labor market stabilization system. It's not just a job creation system. It's counter-inflationary mechanisms are a critical part of it and that's what makes it sustainable.
1: The counter-narrative to the neighborhood. The amazing anti-inflationary job guarantee.
2: Thanks very much for your time, Victor.
0: Fantastic. It's lovely to talk to both you and Kevin and uh, keep up the good work.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Cheers. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station 3CR with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back Program. Great program.
2: Great guests.
1: I walked around my whole life thinking that unemployment was just this unfortunate thing that, you know, governments were doing their best to fix it, but they were kind of hopeless or helpless to do anything about unemployment. And governments always start to talk about jobs, jobs, jobs. All of a sudden at election time, they're always talking about how they're going to create all these jobs. Yes. And then it doesn't happen. (laughs) And so you just sort of think, oh... Poor things. They they really want to do it, but they can't.
2: (laughs) Their heart's in the right place, but they're just ill-equipped to to deal with it.
1: Mm. And then one of the the big reveals of the Nehru, this natural rate or non-accelerating rate of unemployment, is that it's a rate that's deliberately set by government. They actually are targeting a rate of unemployment. Mm. Uh, Victor Quirk, he wrote, since the 1970s, Australians have been conditioned to view unemployment as something beyond the capacity of governments to control, something akin to an act of God like a tsunami or an earthquake. But in truth, it more closely resembles a deliberately lit bushfire. (laughs) Yeah, well,
2: uh, the policy of full employment that was implemented after World War II was changed deliberately by Bill Hayden in off Whitlam's last term mm. would have been mid seventy five, I think, when he handed down his last budget, and it was because of this neoliberal pressure, mm-hmm. uh, he's adopted this very conservative, orthodox concept to try and appear to be more credible. And so it was it was a Whitlam government that ended full employment.
1: Wow! So that's when they first wanted to look like they were fiscally responsible. Yeah. So really. Anyone who's ever experienced being unemployed when they don't want to be unemployed, so they call that involuntary unemployment, anyone who's experienced that since those Hayden years, they're essentially a victim of this idea of the Nehru, which is this idea that the government needs to create a level of unemployment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting that we've all walked around or at least I know I've walked around thinking it was the natural thing. It was this act of God that the governments couldn't do anything about. Then I realized like when you're unemployed and you have to go and deal with all these employment agencies, they're all acting like they're trying to get you into work. And the government is funding these people billions of dollars, like literally the job active contract is five or six billion dollars over five years. So when you learn that the government is spending all this money on these so-called services for the unemployed, you think, oh, well, that must be them doing their best again. (laughs) And that's completely not what's going on. And
2: then, of course, the job services are so frustrating and horrible to deal with that you think, well, that they mustn't be very good at their job. But it depends what their job is. If their job was to actually help people find work, they'd be terrible.
1: Yeah. Their uselessness is part of the deal because, as Victor was saying, the idea also is to make the experience of unemployment as, as horrible as possible.
2: Yeah. So we should tell um, Larry or Larissa, our listener, that that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> why? why would the government do this? Why would the government create a deliberate pool of unemployed? It's purely to put downward pressure on wages. It was used as a union-busting measure to to take away the power of the unions, to take away the power of organised labour, because if you've got a pool of starved, desperate, unemployed people who will do anything for a buck, they'll come in and undercut everybody else. So that's that's the purpose of it. This so-called natural rate of unemployment mm-hmm. is a... Uh, an artificial and orchestrated rate of unemployment to put downward pressure on wages.
1: So that's where the Nehru becomes even more diabolical than I first thought because it would be bad enough if it was true that it was a good way of dealing with inflation. So it was just, oh, well, we've got to do this. We've got to make some people unemployed. But it's even worse.
2: It's a smokescreen for corporations to increase their profit margin, Mm. corporate profit and greed. There's nothing natural about it at all.
1: And then the other part of this smokescreen is this idea that we have to dehumanise the unemployed. And so we do that by calling them dull bludgers and job snobs and all the rest of it. And there's a reason why we have to do that. So they can't just have a Nehru without also demonising the unemployed. And the reason they have to do that is to hold up this cover that it's really not the government who's creating the unemployment, it's the individual who's too lazy to work. (laughs) So... The dehumanizing of the unemployed covers up the Nehru, which is covering up this intentional rate of unemployment.
2: So they shift the focus of their own their own policy of greed by victim blaming.
1: Exactly. So it's a great tactic.
2: They are bastards, uttering complete bastards, <laughs> Anne.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're we're really digging into this bastardry. Music. You know, if you are okay with unemployment at whatever level, like if your macroeconomics or your ideology says to you, well, it's okay to have 4% or 5% or 6% unemployment, the thing to remember is that means that you're actually okay with wrecking the lives of thousands of Australians because that means you're okay with subjecting them to increased levels of domestic violence. You're okay with having their marriages break up. You're okay with the increased potential that they're going to lose their homes, their kids are going to drop out of school. You're okay with them becoming more debilitated with depression and anxiety and being socially isolated.
2: Having to choose between fresh food and whether they're going to pay the heating bill. You're okay with degrading people unnecessarily. What sort of a person is is that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> who are these people that are okay with this?
2: Well, we know who they are. They're running the country.
1: Please don't vote for them again. <laughs> oh. And an economist in the US, Pavlina Chernova, who works on this area of unemployment and modern monetary theory, and she points out that no policymaker ever states that they're aiming for 5% illiteracy or 5% child poverty. But they're all more than happy to aim for 5% unemployment.
2: Yeah, that's actually a really good comparison. <laughs>
1: so it is one of the great ethical crimes of the century, people. Dear listener. Or dear listener. Larry. <laughs> Larry the listener. With Larissa. <laughs> we're not sure. Yeah. So when you hear them say, which we heard in the last budget, anytime time you hear, well, we're probably looking at 6 or so percent unemployment for the next couple of years, Just remember, they're saying that thousands of people are expendable. That's just what they've said.
2: Yeah, I hear five or six percent. I go, is it? Is that good? No, it's not good because that's the official unemployment rate. You know, you put in an hour's work. The fact that you haven't worked for thirty-four hours is ignored, and the fact that you have worked for one hour is counted as you having a job, which is just complete rubbish. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we always need to remember that when we talk about a five or six percentage uh, rate of unemployment, when you factor in underemployment. It was kind of around 12%, 14% before the um, crisis hit. It shot up above 20% earlier on, and, and now it's coming back down to you know somewhere in excess of
1: 15%. As we were talking about with Victor, as a, a rough rule of thumb, you can just double the rate of unemployment. So that difference between, say, 6% and 12%, that's the difference between people who have absolutely no work and people who don't have enough work. So you've got to remember those two things together. Yeah. And if they're talking about measuring this Nehru in relation to the unemployment rate, you can be sure, as Victor says, they're considering it in their evil plans, but they're not admitting to what's just happened, the labour underutilisation. Oh, yeah. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR, and I'm Martin Watts. Professor of Economics at Newcastle University. If we're looking at this from the perspective of the macroeconomic school of thought known as modern monetary theory, so it is saying that any kind of economy that runs using a monetary system, so if you're using a currency in your economy, by design, you're going to create unemployment. That's how it's meant to work. It's meant to create people who are looking to earn the money. And so if you understand your modern monetary theory, then you're going to understand how the level of unemployment is adjustable. If you understand that it's the currency issuer that adjusts the level of unemployment, and in this case it's the Australian federal government, And if you understand that different levels of unemployment suit different interests, so of course workers would prefer a full employment situation and capital would prefer this 5% or so unemployment, then you realise that the level of employment is where there's this fundamental power struggle taking place. And this power struggle is continuously playing out under our very noses, you know, it plays out in the daily news but if you don't know your macroeconomics you won't see it and so I really like the way that Victor was pointing out that the latest round in this power struggle is the way that the government is currently getting away with not spending enough into the economy to bring down the level of unemployment. So they're spending just enough Not to create, I guess, lines and lines of people standing outside soup kitchens like we saw in the Great Depression, but they're not spending enough.
2: It's a very good point. You can see they've put an enormous amount into the economy. They've spent more than any government has spent before. So they have this appearance of being very generous and very... uh,
1: Fair and even-handed and responsive, yeah. But
2: all they've done is put in just enough to stop the economy from collapsing And during this whole process, and this is what I'm really suspicious of, is what are they going to do to further their cause? Mm -hmm. And how they decide to come out of this Mm. could much further enhance the neoliberal ethos of squeezing workers and screwing down the bottom end.
1: Well, that's what Victor was saying, you know, when he's talking about that they're using this to push through some of those So-called reforms to industrial relations Yeah I thought the other thing that Victor said that was quite interesting Was this natural rate of unemployment Originally in the economics It sort of grew out of this thing called the Phillips Curve which was looking at a relationship between wages and employment and Victor pointed out that somehow this morphed into looking at employment or unemployment and inflation. So this jump from looking at the level of wages to looking at the level of inflation is also a bit questionable.
2: I'm trying to get my head around that. The The logic goes that if wages are high, then you stand a chance of inflationary pressure because everybody's got a lot of money. So they're going to keep on bidding things up because they can afford to. Uh, and so it's seen that by having a large pool of unemployed, that you'll have downward pressure on wages and therefore it should be anti-inflationary.
1: Yeah, I'm still getting my head around the aspect of inflation in all of this. And <laughs> How valid is the Nehru concept and how, how much of a stretch is it? As Victor was saying, there is some relationship but it's a very weak one and it's not certainly not enough of a relationship to base this horrible Nehru or this defined level of unemployment on. The weak relationship seems to be that when you get down to 5% unemployment, that last 5% of people they're either not going to have the skills that employers want, partly because they're likely to have been the longer term unemployed, so they're less likely to have the skill sets. And also they might not be located where you want them. So you might get full employment in Melbourne and Sydney, but you will get a rate of unemployment, say, in in Geelong or...
2: um, Regional Australia anywhere. Yeah, it's always harder to get the right skills to some of the more distant locations. Uh, That's why you have to fly people in and out of Western Australia.
1: So effectively, in those places where you've got full employment, then you also get wage pressure because that's when the employers start poaching people off each other and the way they do that is that they offer people higher wages. So you will get a sort of inflationary pressure But that's not the only thing that causes inflation. And the Nehru is not going to fix all those other kinds of causes of inflation. And also, as Victor was pointing out, historically, the relationship between inflation and unemployment is not very consistent. So there's a very weak correlation there. But What's happened is, of course, is whoever these evil people are is that they've run with this idea of the Phillips curve and the natural rate of unemployment and used it to all advantage to get their way, including what you would do now is not spend enough into the economy with the COVID.
2: Yeah, the Nauru seems to be a very simplified argument in terms of inflation. They're saying people have got money, prices are going to go up. That's simply not true.
1: And unfortunately, both sides of politics will still wheel it out.
2: So it's simplistic and it's inaccurate.
1: And even like with people who do believe in the Nehru, let's just assume they are definitely out there.
2: Probably not listening to our show. <laughs> no, Larry and Larissa don't believe in the Nehru, I'm sure. <laughs> They're smart, intelligent
1: listeners. There's at least three of us that don't. <laughs> But even the people that do, I I don't understand why they are not more forthcoming in saying, oh, don't beat up on the unemployed because they must be thinking to themselves, well, it's the government that's created the level of unemployment and it's not the fact that all these people are lazy bastards. Now, I was thinking about why does the stigma work so well? Like, why does that really stick? I mean, apart from the fact that we've got the Murdoch media and both sides of politics repeating it and getting behind it. But I was thinking, well, with every sort of myth that you create in the media, if there's a kernel of truth, it'll stick a bit better. So, for example, there could be an element of truth in the fact that unemployed workers don't want to take just any job. You want to take something that's suitable for you and that's going to give you a decent living and so on. So there can be a kernel of truth to the idea that everyone's not prepared to go and stock shelves at midnight or whatever.
2: Beyond that, there is an element of truth of of the actual dole bludger, of people who can actually make their lives work on the ridiculously low level of unemployment benefits they get, Mm. and they have no interest in joining the workforce because they've learned how to live on the smell of an oily rag, and they choose to adopt that as a lifestyle. They are such a small percentage of the unemployed, but they do exist. Mm. I have no problems. If somebody can live on sweet bugger all... And, and it's deemed as a necessary function to have a, a pool of unemployed in your economy. These people should be uh, our heroes. They should be applauded for, <laughs> for, for taking, up, taking up the slack, literally. You know, uh, but no, they're demonised. But then anybody who's unemployed is thrown in into the same category.
1: You can always find the one example that's going to prove your point and I've met many people who hark back to what it was like to live on the Dole in the 70s and so they would pick up jobs for a few months and then they would go surfing for another few months or whatever it was. So there are people who do kind of half fit this mythological category and i think that's why it sticks
2: you might be talking a bit about me with your second definition there (laughs) it's true i remember back in the early 80s i lived a bit of that lifestyle like for for a number of years Mm. you'd pick up casual work and then i did a lot of traveling and it was a nice lifestyle i did need the extra work because if you're going to travel you need fuel and you need to do stuff
1: yeah yeah
2: you're not necessarily transfixed on getting a full permanent 9 to fiver. That to me is like a prison sentence and always has been. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that as well. No. People say, oh, you've got to have a 9 to fiver. you have got to show commitment, you've got to be disciplined, you've got to be the hamster in the wheel. Mm. And so a lot of the models that we use to define how a person fits into society don't fit a lot of the population.
1: And and I'm thinking the other reason this demonization really sticks, and I think they've shown this in behavioral psychology, is that everyone has an inner kind of measure of of a sense of fairness and reciprocity. And so I think they really play on this idea that some people are bearing the load and then other people are not doing their fair share.
2: You can fully understand that because, like, I don't know that many people that really enjoy their nine-to-five kind of slave-like existence, but -hmm. they do it because they do it out of a sense of responsibility and Mm -hmm. they've got obligations. And so they put their shoulders to the wheel and they do their bit for society. And then they see somebody not working as hard and is heading off surfing And, and there's resentment there. So to them, I say, quit your bloody job and go surfing. (laughs)
1: I think there's a little bit more honesty coming out with the COVID because I've heard so many nine-to-fivers say that they really loved the time that they could spend at home with their families getting a bit more gardening done or whatever when uh, everyone was in lockdown yeah it's
2: quite dangerous breaking that routine because Mm. then people see see the other side and they go oh it's possible
1: yeah I think one reason why I was so shocked that The Nehru kind of isn't a thing. (laughs) It sort of is a thing, but it isn't a thing. And I think it's because the word rate is in there. So it's the natural rate of unemployment. And when I hear the word rate, I assume that there's a number. Like I assume that it's a way of measuring something. If you have a a rate of water flowing through a pipe, something that you're actually going to be able to measure.
2: (laughs) measurement, yeah.
1: Yeah. But with this Nehru, when you look into it, it's actually not really even measured. Like they just look at it in retrospect.
2: Yeah. That's the amazing thing. It's a retrospective explanation of how things happen. So they make the argument fit. They just give you some gobbledygook after the fact saying, Oh, that happened because of this, which is nonsense. It's rubbish.
1: Mm. You know, and you always hear them talking about targeting the Nehru. So if it's targeting. You assume there's a target there. <laughs> you know, you assume that they can see what they're aiming at.
2: Spurious to say the
1: least. <laughs> So not only is it inhumane, it's also very spurious. Spurious.
2: Do you reckon it's more effective to say it's spurious to say the least or it's bullshit?
1: <laughs> you could say it's BS or you could say it's S. Yes, yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, Anne, you know, uh, you've been talking too much again and you've been interviewing too many people again and, and we've we've run out of time. <laughs> so it's time to make room for Mafalda, who's coming up next. And, uh, uh, and look. The next show that we're doing is uh, on Christmas Day. And,
1: uh, oh, it's going to be great.
2: We're going to have a pretty easy time. A lot more music too. We've got to go. We've got to get out of here. See
1: you at Christmas, Kevin. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
2: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR.
1: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
2: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
1: And I thank you, Kevin. Oh,
2: no, no, the pleasure was all mine.
1: Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
2: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
1: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one.
2: (laughs) Well, if you took all the pleasure, that means there's no pleasure for me at all, and I I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure... What, I had, no, I had no pleasure?
1: I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs>
2: well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure. As great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got a
1: multiplier. Pleasure. You've
0: been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station
1: 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.